can ask several questions. A, uh, is the map correct? Two, is the map still correct? Because, like, imagine a map of, uh, I mean, you have a map of uh, New York City from the 1800s. Some streets, I'm sure, are the same streets, but you wouldn't have the subway or things or something. You know, like, some things changed radically. So even if you have a map that was correct when it was written, it's a legitimate question to ask, like, uh, is it still correct? Can we still work with this map? Three, uh, what's the relationship between the map and reality? Don't get lost in the map. Many people get lost in maps. Whether it's Kabbalistic maps, integral institute maps, whatever, you know, people have different maps and uh, then they study the map and they became experts of the map. They never go to the field. So you learn a map in order to go to the field. So how do you do that? And, and another question, which is, do we actually want a map? Do you ever go hiking, and you actually say, you know what, I don't want to look at the map. I just want to be in the, in the wonder and in the awe of Mother Nature, of reality as it is. Something like what uh, Basi was sharing before from, who was it, or the comments, uh, about the dreams. One thing is to learn how to interpret a dream, but there's another value in just staying in the awe, staying in the unknown, and being, sitting in the unknown without trying to control it, basically, by reducing it to something that we can grasp and understand. So here we are in a, in a class of Kabbalah, and I think before we, we do anything in that, it's, it's good to, to contemplate on, 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 these, on, on these questions. And feel reality as it is, without, what would it be if we had no map and no understanding? And we wouldn't reduce reality to any principles that, that we, like any keys that we can lock and unlock. Yeah, Camille? Then we can ask the question, what is reality? You know. Yeah, exactly. There is a question of what is reality, but I would just want to stick to the very simple of like this, the experience. Kind of our experience, yeah. our perception. Yeah, you have limited. basically nothing more than that. Limited to the bounds of human experience. Nothing that you have or think you have is beyond that. We have nothing more than what we grasp in our minds and other senses that we have. Everything that we know, everything that we speak about, God, angels, whatever, demons, anything where, you know, people see lights and whatever it is, any out-of-body experience, you experience because your brain was experiencing it. It's in the body. Even an out-of-body experience is actually experienced in the body. And it's experienced. It is an experience. We have nothing that we can know beyond our what we experience as the inner world, like what's happening within me, like my inner you know, thoughts, feelings, emotions, and the outer world, the way I perceive the world. Anything more than that is an attempt to say something about reality which needs to be proven somehow, but you can't even prove that reality exists beyond your beyond the mere fact that you can say reality exists because I experience it. How do I know that we are here? 
I actually don't. I don't know that you exist. The only thing I know is that I see that you exist. But maybe I'm under drugs now. Maybe I'm dreaming. Maybe... The only honest thing that each one of us can say is humbly what you experience now. That's a very humbling um, thought because you kind of know nothing about reality itself. Just about your own experience. Edmund Husserl, the philosopher, German philosopher, was investing it a lot and, and investigating it a lot and, and working with that. And I really love this, this approach because it's, it, it brings it to the very simple thing. The only thing I can say is that I experience that now I'm sitting in a room in third floor with you guys. Nothing else I can say about reality. I can't even say that the world exists out of those doors. It was before I came in. You know, it's like kind of the humbling feeling of like not knowing and sitting in the unknown is, I think, uh, crucial to... what people call spiritual development. Because a lot of what people call spiritual development is happening because people try to control. And because we try to control because we are in fear. This reality that we cannot control is freaking us out. So we try to control. We try to control our body, we try to control our partners, we try to control reality and, you know, everybody who is doing anything of magic or, you know, anything like the, the need to control is a huge one and it always comes from a basic grain of innate fear, like what would happen if I don't control this? The other side of controlling is freedom. Huh? Freedom. freedom. Surrender. <laughs> it's surrender. Yeah, and with surrender comes deep freedom. Chaos. Exactly, that's what we're afraid. If I don't control, it will be chaotic. So I control. But Sometimes we control because we want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. huh? Because we want to and there's what I've experienced is what I experience is is I, when I see blue, it's my blue. Yeah. And so to connect, even with freedom, to have a shared moment, our brains want to have a perspective. Mm -hmm context that allows us to say I see it, do you see it? That's right. And I, mean, I guess it's to to have some sense of control but connection is almost innate mm -hmm. for us. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, thank you. The you bring us to another very important uh, point, which is each one of us is experiencing the world from a point of view. Each one of us, uh, you know, if you, if you, the way that Martin Buber would put it, each one of us is a legitimate center of the universe. Actually, only when you acknowledge that the other is also a legitimate center of the universe then starts the, the relationship of Aidao might be established. But each one of us is the center of his own his, her own universe, and we have the universe 
perceived from a very specific point of view, which is here. I see the world from here, you know, from my eyes, my ears, and you see it from a different way. Now, this is not a matter of nothing. What's God's point of view? Everything. Everything. Great. So, undivided everything. So, just so imagine how it looks like, right? Imagine just the, the room, how it looks like from my point of view, and your point of view, and her point of view, and her point of view, and from the ceiling and from below. Just put those pictures together. At the same time, what do you get? Chaos. It's very busy. You get nothing because it blurs. And then take it, you know, if you really go for it, take it from any, from the inside of every atom in creation. Like God's point of view from every atom, from everything. Basically all that we perceive as reality is being erased. Because in order to perceive reality, we reduce. We, do, we make a reduction into, okay, I can't deal with reality as it is. Reality as it is, is way beyond anything that I can deal with. So, here I am, sitting on this chair, I have two eyes, two ears, I'm in a human form, and I perceive reality from this little humble point of view, which you do as well. What I know about reality and what reality is is a big difference between the two. But humbly, I embrace the point of view of being a human being in this room now. So as you What's Steve said, in order to communicate, to have any meaning for what the world is, we st our brain starts to make sense of things. That's our, what our, our brain is doing. Do you, do you know those pictures, uh, that, uh, the 3D pictures that you need, to, at the beginning you see nothing? There are two pictures and you look and you, you just don't see anything, it just doesn't make sense. And then there is this switch that happens. All of a sudden you get it. There is a tiger, whatever it is. Like, and you see it. And then you can't see how you couldn't see it before. Right? Because the brain just got it. But it was there before. Before that you just saw lines, whatever it is. And you said, there's no meaning, it's chaotic. And then we got how to perceive it. What's the point of view? We got a point of view that makes sense. And then we rest. <sighs> okay, there is a meaning. We can, we can put a title to that. Now we can make fun of ourselves with that, but also, as Steve said, we need it in order to, A, navigate in reality, just to know where is, where is water, where is food, where is a chair. We need to somehow make sense of our experience and to communicate with others, we need to title things and to say, this is a chair, this is light. And we start to communicate and by the fact of, uh, because we need to communicate, we actually surrender to the process of, re of reducing reality itself to something that we can deal with. I bring all this because uh, I want us to be aware of what we're doing when we're working with all kind of maps and terms and titles and you know the tree of life and Sfirot and uh, anything, anything, anything that we say and you know it's, these are words and terms and we hopefully understand when one say water, the other 
understand hopefully the same thing. But when you say anger, does the other understand the same thing? You say, yeah, I understand you're angry. I know what anger is because I'm angry. I remember when I was angry. But we, there is a gap between what one says and what the other receives. How can terms and maps contain even the vast experience of reality itself? So this is why in um, the Hasidic way, the Baal Shem Tov, when he was um, teaching or having his students study Kabbalah, the, the process was always study, 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 and then drop it all. Drop it all and be in the unknown. So there are all kinds of stories about the students who um, was asked by the Baal Shem Tov to, to learn very well the kavanot, the, the, the intentions, the meditations of Tkiyat Shofar for Rosh Hashanah. And these are, they are quite complicated. But then, when he came to the, actually the Tkiyat Shofar, he said, drop it all. Now, forget it all. Now only come with a broken heart. Which means come with your own experience of love. Not with anything you know about what you're doing, but experience itself. This was also the ancient way, um, I don't know if you heard, some of you probably did about Rabbi Avram Abu Lafia. Um, yeah, who did? Like, just so I know where I'm... Okay, so he was a 13th century uh, Kabbalist that um, said that what he's teaching is not the regular Kabbalah, but the prophetic Kabbalah, Kabbalah Nevu'it. And he claimed that what he got from his teachers is coming directly from the lineage of the prophets. Uh, and it's about training oneself to become a prophet. Now, Abraham Bulafia, one of the interesting documents that we have is uh, a book called Sharei Tzedek that was written by an anonymous uh, writer. There is some name signed, but no one actually knows if this is the right name, um, that studied with Abraham Bulafia. And it's a very, it's a very interesting book. Um, but what I want to mention from that is that he says he would teach me for two weeks a method in Kabbalah. And after two weeks, he would say, now erase it all. Don't stick to that. Erase it all. And then he would teach me a different method. And then he would say, erase it all. Why do we want to erase it all? Because we don't want ourselves to be fooled to think that reality is the map. We want to be raw in experience, in reality, in God, in the divine. And yes, we learn but we don't forget that all that we learn like, is merely words that try to describe the undescribable. So that's the ancient, and the ancient way of studying Kabbalah and the Hasidic way of studying Kabbalah. And it's being forgotten, I think, in many of the schools uh, because, uh, you know, who want to study something and erase it? You don't want to. You actually want to have a, a, a certificate, I guess, like a, a diploma. You know, I studied, I know. <laughs> Not to erase it and it's like, you know, yeah, I know something that I don't know what it was. <laughs> I studied it and I forgot. Yeah. 
Well, what you're saying um, sort of strikes a chord with me. I'm a psychologist, and there's a psychoanalyst, Dion, who occasionally has even mentioned Kabbalah. And he's a psychoanalyst, and he says you need to learn the theory, but when you're actually sitting with the client in the office, you have to completely forget it, as if there's no theory at all. But, exactly. but it's different having learned the theory and forgetting it than never having learned the theory at all. Of course, of course. And why is it different? Because what's important is not a theory. What's important is that you're training your mind and you're creating, you're creating uh, um, neur neurons. Your neurons are wiring in a, in a specific way. In, in brain science today, they say uh, neurons that fire together wire together. Uh, so, and that's how you actually train your brain to do something. If you, you have one experience and you link it with another experience, the, the known one is the Pavlov thing with the dog, right? The bell, each time they had a bell, there was food. So he linked the, the, the neurons that were perceiving the ring were firing together with the neurons that were perceiving food. And then whenever the, the bell was ringing, the dog would salivate. Salary. Yeah. So neurons who fire together wire together. And when you work on a theory or trying to understand a person, so you, you actually create, a, you work through your own um, uh, psyche and you, you, you look at what does it mean and you create those bridges in your brain, you create the, the, the roads for your thoughts, your feelings to go. And then, yes, forget it, forget the theory, but your brain is already wired. And that's exactly what I think is good about, the only thing that is good, truly, about studying anything that is, um, any mystic school program. The only thing that is good is not because you remember it, but just because you went through the experience of learning, and the experience itself changed you. If, if it did, if it was a good one. Is it possible to forget something? Oh, I forgot. Just because you're told to forget anything, I'm going to remember it even more. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's a practice. It seems like it's more teaching you to not take it too seriously. Exactly. It's not like forget, like, no, you can't remember it. But the thing is that if you, then you're being, you're being taught to look at the same thing from a different angle, that makes you forget the first one. Like, like so how did I look at it before? What was, remember this kind of like, you study something and then you study it from a different angle. Like, how... You're so convinced now in the second one that the first one makes no sense, and then you erase, you learn it from the third perspective. Now, there's a contradiction because when you learn something, if you know, like what you said before, it's like you have the map, but now throw the map away, you know the map, go out and live, mm -hmm. you know, experience. Don't just, you know, don't hide behind the map. Exactly. You have the map in your head now. Go out there and yeah. do something. Like that. And so here's analogy, the story. Yeah. Yeah. Another analogy yeah. might be when you um, become a musician, you learn scales. And you can't just learn one scale. If you learn just one scale, you'd be very limited. Mm -hmm. You need to learn all kinds of different scales, different intervals, different speeds, different tempos. And then if you want to play and become a musician, you're not going to play the scales. However, having learned the scales and having those neurons fire, you are that much more free and open to play whatever you like and to play things that have never been played before. Mm -hmm. But if you've never done a scale, yeah. then you won't know how to play one note. Yeah, great. Yes. Continuing the uh, remark, we can say that Maybe the word map is not the exact word, because the scale is not the map of the music. It's just uh, a, a tool to, expo to 
expanded right, your expressive ability. So the same way maybe the, when we talk about Kabbalah, it's not the map of the reality. It's basically a tool to be applied to the reality to enhance our ability to interact with the reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nice. We're just speaking like we added a third component because before we had the map and we had the experience. And what you were saying is you were actually talking about training. So a map is an untrained thing, it's like a book. You know, until you open it and you actually read it, you're not really experiencing anything. So there's the map just landing on the floor, there's me picking it up and studying it, which is still not being in the field, but I'm actually experiencing the, the the study, so that's an experience on its own. And then the third one, which is the field, so it's just there's actually three components. The way yeah. I, I Working it. on the map is the training. Mm -hmm. yeah. So there's the map itself, working on the map, which is training, whether it would be a Kabbalistic map of the Tree of Life, so you train yourself and you go through this. And then the the Kondrin, the, the um, problem, um, might be if you think that reality is a tree of life, right? But when you train yourself enough, you then you you meet reality itself, but you train on the map, and now you can play. It's, it's kind of the same. It's like the scales are like the map of music. Like this is how you make music. This is how it's the connections. You train yourself on that, and now this is it. So, a beautiful story that for me is like one of the foundations of uh, the Hasidic way of, of um, Kabbalah. The story about the Baal Shem Tov is the founder of the Hasidic, well, he, he, didn't, he didn't know that he was the founder of the Hasidic movement. <laughs> he was a mystic teacher and after he died, there was a whole movement that, was, that see itself as the lineage of the Baal Shem. Um, at the beginning, he was just uh, wandering in the villages, he was unknown, and he was wandering around dressed up as a simple man, simple peasant. Um, and when he would go to a town, he would just meet the people and, and speak with them. That was a very a depressed time for the Jewish people, the time when Baal Shem lived. People were really having a hard time. So he, he would cheer them up. He spoke with them, he told them stories, he spoke with them about love, about the love of God, how much love God, God loves them. So one time, Baal came to this town and, of course, stood in the center of town, in the marketplace, and got together with one, two, three people, started to, spoke, to speak with them and uh, tell them stories. Little by little, people gathered. That was the morning. People were actually on their way to Shul, to Shachas. But no one came to Shul. Everybody was just like hanging around the Balshento, listening to his stories. And the rabbi was sitting in Shul alone and getting upset. Like, where is everybody? It's only him and the shamans. So. Eventually he says to the shamans, go see where, where is everybody? So after a while the shamans comes back and says, there is this simple farmer present in the marketplace and everybody is around him and he's telling stories. So the rabbi got very upset and angry and he said, bring them all and we need to start a prayer and bring him as well and I will see him in my office after and I'm, I'm going to punish him. And that day, in these days, the, the Prussian... Um, authorities gave the permission to the leaders of communities to judge and punish their subjects. So the rabbis could actually weep uh, their community. Yeah. 
so after prayer, the rabbi goes to his office and the, the Baal Shem Tov comes in and as, you know, dressed as a simple man and the rabbi is telling him, how dare you, how dare you come to this town and, and, and disturb people from going to prayer, I'm going to uh, punish you with uh, malakot, with uh, weeping. So the Baal Shem Tov said, you know, was smoking his pipe. Well, she was always smoking pipe. No one knows what was in the pipe. <laughs> uh, because he was an uh, uh, herbalist as well. Well, she was a, a good herbalist. Um, and he said, okay, Rabbi, you know, but maybe before you whip me, maybe I'll tell you a story. <laughs> and for some reason, the, his words opened something, and they said, oh, okay, tell me stuff. So I said, listen, once there was a, once there was a rab, so once there was a rab, a rabbi, and he needed to, to he needed to uh, cross the woods, the forest, so he took his chariot and uh, his, uh, his wagon was tied up for, to three horses. One was white, one was red, and one was uh, black. And he went on, trying to cross the forest. But in the middle of the forest there was a, a muddy place. And the wheels of the wagon started to sink in the mud. So the rabbi became upset and started to whip the horses. And the horses became, uh, let's see, agitated. agitated. And they were trying, but whatever happened, the wheels actually sunk deeper into the mud. And the rabbi just didn't know what to do. From the far, there was a simple peasant looking and seeing what's happening, and he shouted to him, Rabbi, let go of the reins. And the rabbi, who had nothing to lose, he let go of the reins. And the horses, they took the wagon out of the mine. Baal Shem Tov said, do you, listen, do you hear me, Rabbi? Let go of the reins. And this Rabbi, his name was Yaakov Yosef, he started to cry. And he became a follower of the Baal Shem Tov. This is Rabbi Yaakov Yosef of Pona, the one, actually the one who wrote, I think, 80% of the tradition of the stories and teachings of the Baal Shem Tov is coming from this, this person who became his follower. <coughs> so here it is. This is Kabbalah. That's why he, he weeped. This story is a story, but in the ancient days, this is how they would teach mysticism. There's a forest, it's like a dream. There's a forest, there's a person, wagon, three horses, white, red, black, and he's stuck. And, and all this, you can see it, it's, it's kind of a dream, right? It's a story, but this is a wisdom story. And so if you have the maps of Kabbalah, you can unfold this story. It's actually kind of unfolding by itself. That's why we want to learn the maps, because once it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Like, it's kind of like double-click on this, double-click on this, everything opens. But let's, let's start to open a little bit. What's happening there? So I'll just, I'll just say, start by saying some hints, uh, or actually asking you, so what is the forest? What does the forest stand for? 
and our mission in life, you know, our job, our tasks, whatever. Yeah, so of course. The force, yeah, it's, it's like our job. Yeah, it's the, it's our, 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 the life is like crossing the forest. But why is it the forest? It's the, it's the there's uncertainty, there's danger, exactly, there's, there's hardship. Is, there's, you know, yeah, it's the place of the, the unknown, a lot of unknown. Danger, uncertainty. Yeah. So it's kind of going into traveling through life, wanting to succeed, to have your mission in life, but you actually go through the unknown, the mysteries. Okay. So from that we can understand that the the whole unit of the rabbi, the horses and the wagon stands for what? The human being, yeah, it's the human being. Human being going through life. So, if so, what is the wagon, what is the rabbi, what are the horses? Well, the, the rabbi is the mind. The rabbi is the mind, of course. The horses are the soul and the cart is the body. Uh, except of the horses, I would, yeah, the cart... The, the horse is backwards. The, the car is the body, body, yes, and the, or the, the rabbi is the mind, and the horses are? Emotions. Uh, emotions. What? Heart. 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 Uh, emotion. Urges. Like the, the powers that are moving us, right? And the mind is trying to control. Right? So, and, and usually it's like, it's not a bad thing to... In order, if you really want to, to if, if you want to go in a, through life, you need a, a certain way, a certain time to control your horses and go through life. But then there wouldn't be a story, right? The story begins when the, this strategy doesn't work. What is the mud? When are we stuck in the mud? Sorry? Story is what worked before and usually works stops working. Yeah. So the mud is when you reach a, a point in your life or on you know, your path where you're stuck and your usual strategies fail. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And many times, many of us face this time that I actually don't know what to do. Everything that I've done before it stopped working. It's not working anymore. And as you said, because a lot of stuff is coming from the subconsciousness, this is kind of the mud, a lot of issues that are mucky and are not clear to me, I don't know how to deal with it, I feel the mud is dirty, right? It's what we, what we call the shadow, the parts, those parts of us that we do not want to deal with them, because they're, they're yucky, they're ichs, they're, you know, those parts that I don't want to deal with. If you run your life, trying to run your life by the mind controlling the horses, you are running into the mud, because the shadow is going to jump and stop you. The what? The shadow. The shadow. Because the shadow is actually saying, hey, 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 I'm here. You know, there are parts of you that you do not relate to. So I'll, I'll just um, take a little sidewalk and just say what I'm, kind of try to describe what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the shadow. Whoever is, you know, ever studied the union psychology is kind of very similar to that. So... In a very simple way, a person is being born to the world, you have many things in you. And immediately you're starting, you started to be um, educated into a society. doesn't matter. If you're born in Africa to a tribe, you're being educated to this tribe. If you're born in a Upper West Side uh, New York, you're educated to that society. It doesn't matter. A society. In every society, there are things that you learn that if, if you do that, 
mommy, daddy loves you. And they say, yeah, what a beautiful child you are. You get love, you get shelter, you get warmth, you get nourishment. There are other things that if you do them, mommy and daddy are not so happy with you. And that feels, to a baby, that feels life danger. Like I might not get love, nourishment, da da da. So we learned very early in our childhood several aspects of us to you know, put them aside. This is the, these are the parts of me that I don't want to deal with. I don't want you to know about them. I actually don't want myself to know that I have them. So I put them in the cellar, in the attic, in the cellar of my being. I don't want to deal with that. It might be... Okay, it might be your violent nature, your greediness, your whatever it is, but it might also be, in different societies, your gentle talent to be a poet. Because maybe you were born to a family of the mafia, and, or to a gang, you know, street gang, and if you're a, if you're a gentle poet, you know, that's like bad, bad news, right? You need to be tough and know how to kick ass. So you put this in the front and your gentle poet goes to the shadow. Whatever it is, those parts of you that you don't want to show, the parts of, that you don't want to be part of the story, this is the mud. It comes up. At a certain time in our life, you come to a place that your strategy of like, the here I am controlling my wagon worked all the time, now it's not working because there's stuff that is wanting to be acknowledged. Okay, so who is giving the advice here? Who knows what to do? The peasant and the farmer. Yeah, the farmer and the peasant. Why is he a peasant? What's important in that? Simple. He's simple. Yeah, he's not a sophisticated mind. This is simple. The way to work with it is through simplicity. The one who's actually closer to the horses, you know, he understands the horses. And then he says the simple thing, let go of the reins. The horses know. Now remember what are the horses? They are the urges, the vitality. We are afraid of our urges. We are afraid of our power. And we try to control and be nice Jewish girls and boys. But underneath that, there are horses running. At a certain point, says the Baal Shem Tov, you need to trust the horses. Trust the horses. They know. They would know how to work you out from the mud that you're stuck in. So sometimes the path of spirituality, mysticism, wisdom, whatever it is, is not going towards the mind and towards spirit, but actually going down towards the horses. Actually, okay. What are your horses? What are the powers in you that you are terrified of and trying to control? And you can take it as homework. I don't know if we meet each other next week. I think so. I think David asked me to teach the three weeks, but I'm, I'm, I wasn't so clear in the phone. <laughs> um, I just have a it's part of the unknown. What? But yeah, I, I can imagine that you know some very you know moralistic rabbis would say you know what about the Yitzhahara you know this is the Yitzhahara what about him okay. this is the horses these right. are the Yitzhahara yes as the Talmud says the Yitzhahara is tov meod this is how it says in the Talmud, the, at the end of the six days of creation. 
והנה טוב זה יצר הטוב, מאוד זה יצר הרע. You get me the Hebrew? So God and God looked at creation and, and saw everything is good. This is the, how do you say יצר הטוב? The good inclination. The good inclination. מאוד, it was very good. The very, very good is יצר הרע, is the evil inclination. That's not, you know, something in Kabbalah somewhere. This is Talmud. Talmudic stuff. Because in the depth of what we see as evil, Even in English, you know, the word evil, if you read it backwards, is <laughs> life. It's like, it's life force that we don't know how to deal with, how to work with, so we put it down. But actually, if you learn, if you know, the real mystic school is to know, not to control yourself, but actually how to uncontrol yourself. אקספרס. I, I think that it's the fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. So he holds on to the reins because he's afraid of the unknown. Of By letting go, he now has to trust. Mm -hmm. And in trust, you get faith. Yeah. And now you're letting God in, and that's really where it's taking us. Yeah. So Rabbi Nachman of Breslev uh, said once, he said it to his disciples, yes, you are decent people. But this is not what I had in mind. אמנם אתם אנשים כשרים, אך לא לזאת הייתה כוונתי. Yes, you are decent people, but that's not what I had in mind. I wanted you to be like beasts roaring in the forests all night long. That's what Rabbi Nachman said to his disciples. And, you know, a lot of Jewish teachings is like teaching you to be a good, a good Jewish boy, a good Jewish girl, but, uh, to be decent people. And, you know, it's important. At the beginning, it's important to be a decent person. And a decent person is like the rabbi. You sit on the wagon and you hold the reins. And you think that you control it and that you have, you know, how to, how to deal with life. Until... You really need to go through the forest until the mud comes up. And then comes the mystic teachings. And the mystical teachings are called Abu, Avraham Abu Lafia said, I'll say it in Hebrew first, Lama Nikraim Sitrei Torah, Shehem Sotrim et Torah Aniglet. In Hebrew, the word Seter mean, has double meaning. One is Mystery, actually I think the word mystery in English or Latin or whatever comes from that, from the original settle. Like mystery, secret. And the other is... Can you say it in English? Contrary to To contradict. To contradict and also, but in Hebrew it's also listopinian, it's to deconstruct. Deconstruction. It's to deconstruct. Yeah, like, it's to build a building and to deconstruct it. Restore binyans. Demolish. Yeah, demolish. Okay, thank you. So, in the Talmudic language, like, restore, soter is like to demolish the, the, the wall. Um, so, the mysteries are called seter, because they are contradicting the, the, the mysteries of Torah are called Sitrei Torah and Sitrei Torah, you can hear it, it has the double meaning one is the mysteries of the Torah the other meaning is the contradiction to the Torah the deconstruction the deconstruction of Torah the demolishing of Torah uh, we, 
there is the nigle, the, the, the literal aspect that you come and you study and you become a decent person and this is good very good and then when you go into the mystery school they say okay forget it give me your horses who would you be if you let go of the reins what are the horses in you that you are terrified of is the, is the problem or is the challenge the uh, um, title the difference between repression and sublimation? If you repress your drives, then you've lost that energy and uh, your life is diminished. If you can, uh, um, if, you, if, if you learn Torah as in, if they're being a good boy or a good girl, um, the point isn't to know, is, the point is not to become a monster point is somehow within the construct of being something like a bench, mm -hmm. how to still allow those, to tap those energies and allow them to uh, empower, enliven your life. So sublimation rather than repression. Yeah, and the thing is that in order to, to have the sublimation really working, you need to really befriend your horses. And as long as you're really, as you're trying to, and you're sort of like, you know, hey horses, I'm going to sublimate you. <laughs> you're not really befriending your horses. And as long as you're thinking that the horses are making you a monster. Monsters are being created. I, I love this Disney movie, Monsters, Inc. You know, it depends on each time, you know, what, when do you have children? You know, when your children are young, you, you watch with them all the Disney movies, and then this is my, this is my, you know, the Disney movies that I know include uh, monsters because my children were young at that time. So, if you didn't see in, in, in Monsters um, uh, Inc. Of, of, of Disney and Pixar, so the, the, the monsters are, are feeding on fear. So they're little. But in order to grow, they need to frighten children. So when the parents are turning off the lights, they go out of the closet and they say, Wah! and the child is afraid, and then they're getting nourished and they grow. Okay, so it's a, it's a simple and true psychological you know, understanding. Your little shadows are growing because you're afraid of them, and they become monsters. So at the beginning, it's a horse. After a while, it's a monster, because just because you're afraid of it. So the, the this path is a path of, as I said, befriending the horses and actually seeing like, what am I afraid of? Why do I need so much to to control my horses, to speak about sublimation, to you know to. There is a fear underneath that. And only when you jump into this unknown and into the fear, as you said, faith comes in. Because before that, you're just controlling your life. When you're letting go, you allow the divine to control your life. It's like, I'm not in control. But so you see, and I, I, we'll, we'll finish here. Um, I think that's the time for ending, but um, I'm free, I'm, you know, I'm a month ago. <laughs> 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 but, uh, just a sec. Uh, the switch or the, the transformation is from controlling to loving. When you really live as love, live as love, is divine love, you're totally out of control because you don't need control. There's no need to control anything because you are living as love. That's why you, know, you have all kind of crazy divine beings that are out of control. No one can control them. And they don't need control. They don't need to be controlled. Because they're just walking as divine love in the world.
and opening the world to the divine. Why to control that? But as long as we are afraid of our own nature, of who we are, we kind of say, I want to control my life. I'm not going to give God to control my life. You know, it's like this story about uh, this person who's clinging to a, a branch of a tree over the abyss and like, is there anyone there? I'm going to fall. Is there anyone there? And he hears God's voice that says, let go, my son. I'll catch you. Is there anyone else? <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, talking about the uh, horses uh, uh, and the maps, perhaps you're doing a little bit uh, anachronism mm -hmm. because today, who's driving horses today? Mm. We all drive uh, cars and the horses are basically sublimed. Like the engine is inside, it's not outside as it was in the story of this rabbi. Like there, the living forces were very obvious and vivid. Mm -hmm. Today, we are all driven by the engines that, like, sub sub sublimation of all our vital forces that became maybe much more powerful than it was in previous times. But on the other hand, they're, you know, covered by a very shining outside and no horses from outside. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should consider some, you know, some adjustments for the Kamala maps. We definitely need to adjust with the, with the, with the maps. much more powerful engines and yeah. to, de to define it because like when we look at Tree of Life, we can definitely see like it's a, as a carrier, uh, as with a chariot. Uh -huh. With uh, you know three three horses maybe scatter of Madina could be seen as a, a horses or chesed right whatever right but uh, if you're talking about the uh, today's reality so we should put much more inside there. You know, Kabbalah Google map app. Uh -huh. uh, I yeah. don't know how many yeah, horse so horses like two hundred fifty. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, so always in a story you need to take what's you know relevant from the story. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm asking. Yeah. For, today, and, for today, and this story could be not relevant because mm. like, uh, I think so. if, 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 we, if, we, if we let go of a wheel, yeah. most probably we will get, uh, end up with an accident in, that, in the best because, case scenario. Yeah, because you're, that's why the car cannot be a metaphor for your urges. But today we drive cars, <laughs> not the horses. So you so don't that, do that, the metaphor. That, that, that is my question. <laughs> that, so how, how much do, do you want me to, to how answer much, How much this okay. story is? Do you want me to answer That's right. That's what I'm claiming. You don't have a road. So. You're not going on the road. Yeah. If we study more, I'll talk about it. I do think that uh, the maps of Kabbalah, of Luriani Kabbalah and Ramak and everything, these are basic maps and today we need to, one of the important needs of our time is to create Neo-Kabbalah, whatever it is you want to call it, like what are the maps of today? Um, and it's not so much about cars, <laughs> but I think uh, just to tap on that, um, after the feminist uh, revolution, the place of the feminine in our world is different, and uh, the maps uh, need to relate to that. Um, after, um, what else can I say? After the democratization um, of everything. Uh, we can't continue only to relate to maps also in simple religious uh, um, thinking to maps that are relating to power as a king and slaves and stuff like that. You know, God is a king. Uh, God, God is a king, works at a certain level. It's always an arch the king is always an archetype. 
even when we are in modern time, still there is an archetype, as horses are an archetype, so it still works. But there's, if we really want to understand our world, we need to learn the ancient maps and also let go of them and kind of come with the with bravery to Jewish mystery and to say thank you all ancient Kabbalists thank you for all that you wrote and we need to write our new book out of learning those books and yet not being attached to those. So, 